Sometimes we are constrained by tools, but sometimes we are just constrained by the fact that, well, the attacker doesn't want to be detected, and your environment is messy, business changes, you acquire companies, you deploy things, IT does random stuff that scares the security team. So to me, a detection mission is hard in these environments. I have a layered cake of IT from mainframes to containers. So detecting threats in this layered cake is hard. And it's just hard. I mean, I'm sorry, there's no end. Welcome to the Building Cyber Resilience Podcast by Resilience. I'm Dr. Ann Irvin, Chief Data Scientist and Vice President of Product Management. And I'm Richard Syerson, Chief Risk Officer. That was Anton Shavakin, security advisor at the office of the CISO at Google Cloud that you heard at the top of the show. Anton's career trajectory has allowed him to gain perspective from both sides of the table in cybersecurity. I guess my biggest claim to fame is uh, spending uh, about eight years at Gartner, growing all the way to VP Distinguished Analyst, covering threat, threat intelligence, security operations, detection and response, a few other odds and ends. I have to interrupt here and tell you, Anton is being incredibly humble. Anton went from really leading the charge from an analyst perspective at Gartner on Seam to going to being a product manager at Chronicle. And then, gosh, I think it was within a month or two, Chronicle getting bought by Google. He credits being able to make this career move to keeping an open mind rather than becoming jaded and becoming what I call an unproductive skeptic as it relates to seam. It's very hard to keep your mind open. And in my case, I managed to do that. And I kind of fell in love with Chronicle. When I first saw the founding team and that platform, I was like, that's the sim I was dreaming about for 10 years in my sleep. Like, this is how I always wanted it. This is how I wanted to go fast. This is how I wanted to be priced. This is how I wanted it to work. Of course, I've asked about some things that I expect to see, and I didn't. In 2019, Chronicle didn't really have any amazing machine learning or amazing magic in the areas that Google is known for. So it got built since that time. But ultimately, I saw the signs of a sim platform of the future that I was always dreaming of. That's how I fell in love. And I thought, okay, it's time for me to leave Gartner. I want to be on the other side of the table, not on the analyst side, but on the vendor side. With brilliant minds like Anton building new cutting edge technologies like Chronicle, the question of how machine learning and human intelligence complement one another becomes pertinent. Anuj Makoparam, Principal Security Engineer at Salesforce, offers important insights. So currently my role at the companies that I worked before and now is what they call traditionally as a blue team. And uh, the role essentially would be around trying to catch adversaries, detect them, be able to see if we can you know, build techniques or tactics that, that are generally used for, for attack, end-to-end attack patterns, trying to catalog them and build as much as detection coverage as we can get so that at least we would be able to catch these adversaries at some point in the kill chain. And the, the methods that are used are range from traditional detection methods where we go look at logs, and from there to also to run heuristics or mathematical modeling in some way, you know, applying machine learning. It ranges from traditional methods to more advanced methods. As the principal engineer leading a team of 300, Anuja is well-versed in what it takes to pivot, be creative, and evolve just as fast, if not faster, than their attackers using both traditional and new techniques. 
given the landscape has, or rather I must say the attack vectors has grown, have grown a lot over the years. So mix and match of these uh, techniques help a lot and not necessarily aim for just traditional methods because at scale, traditional methods do tend to fail. So my role currently is to apply whatever technique is required to catch that specific threat. Uh, at the same time, conduct research and development R&D security research to help detect more modern attacks or adversary attacks that we see in the wild. Anuja's wealth of expertise has established him as a leading voice in the threat hunting space. As a threat hunter, it's his job to proactively detect, isolate, and remove cyber threats that may have slipped through a security system's cracks. He knows how challenging it can be to try to encourage uptake of better security practices, even at tech companies. At the end of the day, he says it comes down to what your company values. That really speaks not necessarily about the culture in the company, but more geared towards how they want to place security or where they want to place security, security within their priorities. And uh, it just so happens in technological companies, you know, security is definitely valued and it's uh, the top three values of, of companies. And that definitely helps driving all security initiatives and help understand executives and the people in the company to know why a security measure would help the product to grow and then also customers trust. And also in some you know, financial technological companies, we do have uh, some barriers which actually help security, uh, but also in, in traditional ways, they do not allow as many as technological advancements as we would want. And that also limits certain security features to be deployed. And when, when we compare that with, with the non-technological companies, the problem I, I, I do see would be around, if we want to have security, we need to have technology. And uh, in, in traditional uh, non-technological companies to actually implement a tech feature or a tech product, I think getting buy-in would be more difficult. So how should you encourage buy-in and approach improving cybersecurity when faced with a cloud-resistant business or boss? What is the magic combination of human skills and machine learning? Is it possible to build teams and systems that are both trustworthy and scalable? Anuj and Anton walk us through the developing landscape of cybersecurity in light of machine learning, utilizing data, and what true cyber resilience means. They share how the real value lies in effectiveness and correct application, and how to build teams and systems that make it happen. We get back into the conversation with Anuj explaining why simplicity is often at the root of resistance when it comes to how much a company values protecting their users and data from cyber attacks. For certain reasons, fintech companies do not want to change their product a lot. Um, meaning, you know, most of the fintech companies offer simple products which would help customers understand what the product means and, you know, as simple as showing numbers and getting customer buy-ins because it's a simple product. And if more complications are introduced or features are introduced, there is always this notion of, well, the customer may not like it and it might drive the adoption down. And uh, an example would be, implementing MFA, which is multi-factor authentication. If you would want a customer to secure their account, setting up an MFA would be probably one of the first steps, which is you know, providing 
a second factor authentication so that even if the password is compromised, customer accounts is safe because they have MFA enabled. And rolling out that feature would have customer you know, change certain things of how they do day-to-day you know, activity, which is they'll have to have this additional step. And fintech companies do not necessarily you know, like implementing those controls because it introduces additional step and there is always drive to not push for certain features. And it's not necessarily directed towards security, but technology, technology advancement in general. Mm-hmm. And uh, that impacts security. And that's one of the examples where on uh, pushing MFA would, yes, have uh, additional step that customer could take. And it definitely introduces a bit friction, but at the end, it provides a lot of value. While this resistance to uptake is a challenge, Anton sees this kind of pushback as eventually becoming unthinkable. Let me quickly add to the point you made, because it was almost like a reminding me a conversation I had with somebody actually from CrowdStrike a good number of years ago. I think it was at a Gartner Security Summit 2013 or something. So like at this point, what, nine years ago. And the question was about this topic. I have an EDR. My EDR is only cloud backended. I cannot do it on-prem. I don't have an on-prem version. I only have a cloud backended version. Some clients in 2013 and today as well show up and say, whoa, I like your EDR. Uh, can I have it on-prem? And the answer is uh, no. You can't have it on-prem. And they say, okay, then I don't want it. Okay, fine, fair point. In 2013, more fair than now. But the idea is, what if we are reaching the point where choosing on-prem is kind of a choosing a, to work on a typewriter and not on a PC? Like, if the gap in effectiveness is so high that it's almost like a horse and buggy, or I don't know, maybe Space Shuttle is a better analogy now. Uh, horse and buggy or Starship, how about that? Like if the gap is that big, then wouldn't you overcome your resistance? Right. My hypothesis is that you would. Somebody who, from a tool that cl- it's cloud backended is gonna be 50X more, right. 100X more. Are you really going to take the risk? That's the situation I expect to develop even more. I think it has developed in EDR. It is developing in SIM. But I think it would develop in other areas of security where cloud hesitancy would mean choosing tools that work 100x verse. How about that? Would you still do it? Anton's hypothesis that cloud-based tools will eventually remove hesitancy surrounding their uptake isn't unthinkable, but it's still not quite in line with reality yet. In fact, it's not just the client side that is resisting change. Some in the cybersecurity space might argue that the increasingly effective technology like Chronicle is going to replace them. But Anton sees the cloud-based tools as a complement rather than competition. There's a road that says, actually, we should evolve the tools so that there is no level one. Level one is done by a machine. Somebody creates a playbook and SOAR, and the level one tasks of basic alert handling, deciding whether certain things are should be shown to humans are done by a machine. So there's a route that says, remove level one. There's a route that says, frankly, fighting threats, detecting threats is a hard task. And ultimately threats aren't IT failures. They are people who are consciously trying to evade us, the defenders. So people who see signals from the detection tools like SIM will have to be somewhat skilled. Otherwise, sorry, but the other guy wins. Right. So that's the second route. And the third route is, Actually, the whole level structure is wrong. 
You should hire people who develop automations and then automations handles everything. The logic or the final state of this is that you don't, you sort of don't really fire your level ones. You sort of remove levels. People create the sort of like the machinery and the technology for creating alerts that's also fused with the technology for handling alerts, which is also informed by hunting and threat intel. And you have sort of engineers, analysts who do that. Now, they are way more skilled than the typical level one, and occasionally they're more skilled than a typical level three, but they scale way faster than linearly because ultimately you have to scale your SOC faster than the threats and the asset. That's been my, the line I've been telling everybody like a broken record. You have to scale faster than the threats and the business. If you are scaling linearly with the threats and business, you lose because ultimately business really, more more assets would scale faster than your security team. You can never hire your way to success, but you can develop your way to success, which calls for new skills. And it kind of removes the question about what to do with level ones, are level ones automated? The question becomes, well, the level system is off. We do this, we build things that produce alerts, handle alerts and escalate. Of course, incident response is still a human-centric endeavor. I don't think we're gonna remove humans from the incident response loop. But humans can be not removed, but repurposed in the SOC loop, where you kind of create an analyst slash engineer and not just an analyst, better analyst, less good analyst. You're warming my heart and my mind. I I love that story. I love the the concept of removing the levels because that is the go-to thought process and getting into uh, really, I don't know if it's a new breed or new type of person that's structurally coupled with the machine. I think that's awesome. Anuj sees team structure shifting in his threat hunting role as well, as the more traditional, hard-nosed forensics approach becomes less effective over time. He shares how he thinks about hiring and what skills he believes make up a successful team member. So to start with uh, how we would want to hire people based on the skills is uh, today traditional methods do not work if you have large data sets. And that is proven because we've, we've tried to do that for data sets that you know, considerably big. And uh, what we discovered or, or to the process is when we apply traditional methods, we end up finding anomalous events, but they do not necessarily try to get us what we need. Meaning if you're trying to find actually needle in the haystack, you may want to pivot off of the traditional methods and go into data science or more modern methods, which may not necessarily require human eyes to, uh, or do cursory analysis in the beginning. And uh, what we found is that the skills that are needed for modern threat hunting is actually a combination of security and software engineering skills. And, you know, essentially, right, someone should be able to write both algorithms and understand the business context. And uh, that definitely has helped us over time. So for example, I can say with traditional threat hunting, it could take us probably a couple of days to go through a large data set, uh, but with combination of what we need plus algorithmic skills, it actually took about like a couple of hours, 13 incident analysis. And both of the methods got exactly what we needed, but getting um, algorithmic methods into the equation got what we need sooner than later. 
I'd imagine, and you correct me if I'm wrong, it's pretty hard to hire directly from college unless you have a, you know, someone right there to really mentor someone and train them up. It sounds like this is a pretty rarefied skill set. Of course, you kind of get the pick of the litter given where you are right now. Am I correct in that? Or have you found success with bringing in junior people? Junior, maybe they got their master's, you know, in computer science or whatever, but they're they're new to the workforce. Are you able to bring them in or does it require really to have seasoned pros? I would say new grads would be able to um, understand what is needed, but to actually get the solution, we'll have to rely on seasoned uh, security professionals. So I can give you an example. Like today, if the goal is to find a potential privilege escalation or a attack that we know is possible, but we don't know whether it happened or not, new grads today would be able to know, okay, what the attack is and how it's done, but to find the exact solution or to find the exact event, a seasoned professional should be able to get to that sooner. But all those skills are definitely teachable. Uh, You should be able to transfer those skills and get new grads up to speed, but that is something you will have to train them. And uh, new grads are good at mostly theoretical practices and theoretical knowledge would help them get up to speed sooner, but a seasoned professional, given their experience and given they may have been through a lot of incidents and security challenges, they may be able to get uh, to the solution sooner. And uh, I believe on a day-to-day basis for a security practitioner, um, I think experience is what provides them the ease of going through these incidents. Uh, you know, getting an experienced person would help drive, get solutions sooner. And I think those are different teachable. It's just that you have to spend time with the new grad and get them up to speed. Is it most important that they're able to, you know, script and write software or do data science, which those are not mutually exclusive, by the way, I get that. But, or is it security hacking skills? What is it that's like, you, I say to you, Anuj, you get to choose one. What's number one? So for me, number one would be foundational knowledge. So which would be a person getting into security space should be able to understand what logs mean, what a traditional network security stack would mean, and how you can translate a log or the knowledge that you are looking at or the the information that we are being provided, how you can translate that to a traditional infrastructure stack. So I I would focus on you know, someone having foundational knowledge strong, because I believe with experience, you would be able to build on top of that foundation. And uh, I think that definitely have seen at least a couple of, uh, you know, my mentees uh, been successful in this in this field uh, because they were really strong at their fundamentals um, right. and their foundation was really strong. Um, and uh, they were able to get new information and build on top of what they know. And it almost seemed natural. The foundational knowledge becomes critical as the relationship between machine learning and human expertise becomes more nuanced and complex. Anton explains the meaning of autonomic and discusses his role in coining some pivotal cybersecurity terms. It isn't about automate, remove humans. It's not about give humans better machines. So like 
to me, automated or even automatic or automated, they're all go in the direction of fight machines, humans, machines, humans, who does what, who does what, who gets removed. So to me, autonomic kind of avoids this. And it's more about building an entire system that can scale better with threats and assets. It's basically building a system that's kind of autonomic, but it mixes human tasks, machine tasks, and it kind of combines them together. Of course, humans building machines to do stuff and machines doing stuff with humans. But ultimately, the entire system is autonomic. It's not about I'm digging holes and now I have a digger that's a machine doing my work. It's more about I'm building a system, the entire system that can handle threats, that can handle issues, handle changes in business in a way that scales. And there's automation, of course, in the picture, but it's not, we're trying to sort of avoid the question of which tasks are automated. We're kind of trying to say the system autonomically responds to threats. And yes, it involves humans too. The word autonomic, it's actually good that you had to look it up because if your mind goes straight to automatic, you start thinking, ah, sock without humans, that can never work. And you have this instinctive reaction that whoever wrote it is just selling something. But autonomic to me is this entire system. Like, I think a partial inspiration, this is my guess, the field animals didn't tell me that, a partial inspiration of this is a lot of Google materials on security, even the, the books that people from Google has written about security, mentioned that security is often an emergent property of the system. It's not so much about built-in bolt-on. It's kind of like you can look at the entire system and judge its security. You're not really, it's not so much about our features built in or architected in. It's kind of about the entire system. So to me, autonomic plays in the same world. It's plays in the world of, I'm building an entire system to deal with threats. I'm building a detection and response, well, entire system. And that mm -hmm. system should be autonomic. It can't be manually cranked, but it cannot be only about robots. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that actually. That, that really makes sense. So another words question. So you're credited with inventing the term EDR and point detection and response. Could you just take us back to, to how that happened and, you know, when you decided there was enough happening in the endpoint space that made you think, you know, there's enough innovation here to, to really demand a new term? Now, the process behind it was the following. I was looking at data sources for investigations. I was looking at, of course, I was looking at SIM, I was writing about SIM, and I was looking at sources of data, sources of telemetry that are useful for investigation and detection, but they're not commonly present in logs. So I was looking, where do we go beyond logs? Of course, we go to network traffic. Uh, you have traffic metadata, layer seven detection, you have Zeek, you have lots of tools, but we also have a lot of useful telemetry on the endpoint. So which tools look at endpoint activities to detect threats. Well, that's antivirus. Am I talking about antivirus? Absolutely not. I'm not talking about malware. I'm not talking about viruses. I'm talking about detecting things on the endpoint that are not necessarily malware. So what technology does it? Well, well, there isn't any. Well, in 2000, I'm thinking 2013, there isn't any. Well, wait a second, what's going on? Do people look at endpoint logs? Yeah, they do, but like a lot of stuff just isn't in the logs. What about all the memory anomalies? What about all these uh, little comings and goings of Windows drivers? Like they're not really in the logs or they're not in the logs realistically. So then I started looking at what people actually do. And as, as commonly happens for analysts, Gartner analysts in particular, there appeared a cluster in my mind, a cluster of things, technologies that sort of group together. And usually analysts get a crayon and like dry, draw a circle around the cluster and then name it. So I realized there's a cluster of things at the time 
There was a Mandiant uh, MIR tool. There were a few other tools. And I realized they all use different naming and they all try to explain what they do, but there's no name for the cluster. And I thought, that's EDR. And I went through a whole internal process. I sent a bunch of spreadsheets to many people. I had people vote on names. I had people uh, suggest many alternatives. Some of them are really funny, like ear <laughs> investigation, analysis and response or something. Like I remember an analyst saying, why don't we go with ear? It listens, right? And I'm like, no, nah, that's a little too cute. It's enough. SOAR is enough as far as cute acronyms. So EDR kind of won the contest and that's how we ended up with a name. And then eventually it developed into something bigger. Now, you know the cool. entire story. Anton's story about coining the EDR term colors in some inner 